0: Hello friends, it's Alpha Bunga, Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name's Alex, hopefully in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. What's cracking, guys? Hey. Uh, Not much.
1: Happy International Men's Day.
0: Right, indeed. Yeah, Yeah. so we're recording this on Thursday, the 19th of November, um, which, uh, yeah, is International Men's Day, a a sign of pathetic wounded authority if there ever was one, uh, in my opinion, which is actually pretty appropriate because authority uh, and its absence is a big chunk of what we're going to be talking about today. Our guest on this episode is Todd McGowan, who's author of a number of books on film, psychoanalysis, and more. Uh, but here we're going to be discussing his latest book, Emancipation After Hegel, Achieving a Contradictory Revolution, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2019. Uh, this was a book that we also covered in our reading club uh, for patrons. Uh, it, it was episode 157, if you want to check that out. And if you're not a member already, uh, sign up uh, for access to our reading clubs, and um, So this is the kind of second time round we discuss the book between ourselves, and this will be a great opportunity to uh, discuss it with the author. Um, Just a little bit about the book, it's a philosophical book, um, which sounds intimidating, but it's Politically, quite exciting. Uh, and it's very well written. And that's the most important thing. I think it's extremely clear in its prose. It's simple where as, uh, simple as it has to be, or as it can be. Um, and that makes it lucid and engaging. So um, that's one reason that we've selected to discuss it in the Reading Club and discuss it here with the author uh, in a way that we wouldn't normally do with a philosophy book. Um, This episode, though, was produced by Phil, um, and I'll hand over to him to explain a little bit more. You don't have
1: to make excuses
0: for philosophy.
1: People like philosophy. It's good. It's good Mm, to think. I don't. But, you know, that's good for them. Yeah. I'm not.
2: (laughs) Exactly don't i mean you know maybe in private george but you don't have to talk about it i mean you're a consenting you adult so you're <laughs> free to do whatever you like in private who are, you try, who are you trying to impress here dude yeah but don't you know you don't have to boast about it man okay you know so i've read many um, philosophy yeah, anyway, posts <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a very lucid book as you said Um, and I, um, I learned a lot and also it's one of the rare, um, unlike George, I don't read philosophy books uh, that regularly. Um, but just, so it's one of the rare kind of philosophy books that I've read where I think there are genuine political lessons to be extracted from it. And I think also gen kind of really important political insight that I, um, would like to share with a wider audience, which is why we've invited Todd on and why I want to talk why. We wanted to talk about the book, um, not once but twice. So,
0: very good. Let's see if we can't extract some of those political insights with Todd right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're here with uh, Todd McGowan, who's a professor at the University of Vermont. Uh, now, to listeners, I guess there's a small number of abnormal people out there who'll get their kind of geeky name, uh, has some relation to the German philosopher uh, GWF Hegel. Um, but for many of you, maybe that might not be clear, and, and maybe so much the better. Um, but this is actually the first time we've had someone on to discuss Hegel directly. Um, so we're uh, very happy to welcome Todd onto the show. Hello, Todd. How's it going?
3: hi good to see, good to be with you
0: yeah great to have you um phil over to you
2: thanks so hi todd and um emancipation after hegel is your 13th book if my count is correct
3: wow i didn't know that <laughs> <So>.
2: <laughs> well I hope, the count, I hope the count is correct so i went to the website so um uh yeah congratulations um and um so Hegel, Hegel is a philosopher from the um, early nineteenth century, late eighteenth century. Composed his philosophy during and after the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, um, and he's also taken as perhaps the paradigmatic philosopher of modernity. Um, and but, you know, so two hundred years later, and um, what motivated you to write a book on Hegel at this particular point?
3: well i've I've actually always wanted to write a book on Hegel since I was a grad student and first read Hegel and I just never felt like I had the i don't know intellectual background to do it so so first of all, I had to learn German so that was the thing i did that about fifteen years ago so that made me oh, wow. okay. got me in the position where I could do it and then i you know I just kind of gradually put it together and 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 it was just, it's always been the thing that I've been most, I, I care most about. So of all those books, it's the one that really is closest to my heart. So that, it's really personal. It's not, I mean, I do feel like Hegel really speaks to the time, but for me, it was, it was, it was first and foremost, just a, a labor of love really to do.
2: So one theme that we um, consistently return to on the show is the end of history. And our tagline on the show is the end of the end of history. Now, one of the one of the things that I really um was completely kind of gripped by in the book itself is you've got this fascinating interpretation of um the end of history. And I was wondering if you could so if you could talk through the conventional interpretation of the claim and then how you reinterpret it.
3: Right, sure. This so this is maybe Hegel's most well, he has a lot of controversial things that he said, but I think this is one of the most controversial because when you hear it, it makes you think like, oh. Everything important has already been done, and I don't really have anything left to do. And so it seems dissatisfying or or, or, or dispiriting, especially to leftists like I'm a leftist. So for me it was it seems dispiriting. And, and and it's interesting because a lot of people have taken this this idea up, including Hegel himself, but his mm-hmm. maybe his most famous fo- follower, Alexander Kojev kept trying to locate the end of history first he located in napoleon then in stalin then in the united states and then finally he was a ambassador to japan and he said it's japanese snobbery that really is the final oh, end <laughs> point of, of history so it's kind of funny and and what's interesting is a lot of People that I really like that read Hegel, namely Slavoj Zizek, Catherine Malibu, people like that. They they really push back against this notion of the end of history. And there even have been thinkers, scholars, I guess, of Hegel that have tried to say this is really a Kojevian idea that's been put onto Hegel. And I, the problem is that Hegel actually does say it. And and yeah. I, so I was trying to think like, what could he possibly mean? Because he doesn't. He he was always involved in contemporary. Political questions. He, I mean, he wasn't an activist by any means, but he was at least commenting on them and writing about them in his letters. So, and 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 indirectly uh, talking about them in his the, a lot of uh, theoretical works. And so, I, I guess I wanted to try to find a way to think through the idea that didn't make it seem just reactionary and and wrong. And so, I guess so. What I what I I came up with was this idea, and and this I think bore out. It's part of my whole way of approaching hegel that i i see him as a a philosopher who who thinks that the point of philosophy is to reconcile ourselves to contradiction and that the and that the movement of his dialectic is a ever deepening of contradiction rather than a resolving of it and so that for me was really important and so then i thought well the end of history has to have some has to relate to that in some way so the idea the idea that i i I th- and I th- I feel like this is right that obviously I feel like it's right or I wouldn't have written it that uh, that 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 history ends when we become reconciled to contradiction and recognize that contradiction is insurpassable that we're always going to have it because for Hegel that's identical to recognizing our freedom and so that was really for me the point that it, it's it, it's where the theoretical idea and then the political idea came together reconciling to the inevitability of contradiction then means that we're necessarily free because there's no authority figure that can be substantial, that there's no authority figure that we can rely on, that we just are on our own. And that's the idea of freedom. And so I, I, the idea was that once you get to that point, that recognition, then that's really, there's never going to be another historical move beyond that recognition of freedom. So what we do with that, I think is up in the air. But I think that recognition is the end for Hegel. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, That's really really interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, No, this idea that there's um, no authority figure that we can can rely on, and that's a kind of historical um, inflection point or really key kind of change. Does this mean that for hegel um this is when modern politics uh starts so it begins when history ends when we're no longer subject to these
3: pre-modern um forms of external authority that we could previously rely on that's right so the so the idea would be that the end of history is actually the beginning of modern politics i think that's that's right that's that would be my reading of it yeah so, so well, we have-
1: i guess the question then, and, and you, you sort of alluded to this in in your answer to what phil um asked but does the, what, what are the possibilities at, at that point then what what distinguishes or what distinguishes modern from pre-modern um politics or you know what's what is opened up at this point politically yeah.
3: well i think that the, the what distinguishes is, is is precisely the idea of freedom and and this and this notion that authority has to be divided against itself so that we can't, we can't appeal to Mm. it. And I think, so that notion that you have to rely on yourselves as, as subjects, I think is the, is the modern problem. And, you know, I think, I think the problem in modernity is, and I think this is one thing Hegel didn't necessarily foresee the way in which people will try to get out of that freedom and to, to erect figures that they feel like they can rely on. And so I think that's something he didn't, I mean, he didn't foresee the. in other words, he didn't foresee the rise of fascism, I don't think, but, but that is a, so that is a, I think that's a problem that, that comes up, but I think it's actually a problem of the modern, specifically modern situation where you're, you're, you're in this position of radical freedom. And then, you know, I think that that's a difficult position to sustain. And I'm, I'm not sure he understood how difficult it was to sustain.
1: Yeah. Sorry, just to, just to clarify, I think that the position of radical freedom—that's—that would be the idea that we have to rely on ourselves. Where it it's a possi- it's a possibility, is the its possibility—is this right? It's a possibility given to us um, that we can rely on ourselves, but also it's—you uh, know—there's there, nowhere to hide. Um, that's right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That there's no, there's nothing to ground. I, I mean, the gr- the idea of a ground is, I think, important. That there's no, there's no substance that you can ground yourself on. Mm. So I think this this line of Hegel's in the beginning of the Phenomenology, in the preface, when he says we have to understand things not just as substance but also as subject. This idea that there that everything that seems substantial is split or riven by contradiction and thus at, at odds mm. with itself. I think that's such an important idea for him, and I think that's the. I think he thinks grasping that is the modern situation. So,
0: uh, yeah. Todd, I mean, t- taking that. I mean, it'd be interesting to maybe make that. Dialogue, I guess, with, I mean, with your interpretation, your understanding of Hegel, um, and the kind of Fukuyama, Fukuyamian notion of the end of history. Because, of course, I mean, our uh, hypothesis, our wager is that we're at the end of the end of history. I mean, according not to the real Hegelian understanding, but at least to what Fukuyama proposes that uh, right. that kind of all the big questions are settled, and that now that is being all put into question but i mean that that understanding is one which relies on or or hinges more on questions about political regimes i think um and then certain natures of maybe you know the liberal democracy specifically um which has lost its authority um and and your and and you know the hegelian notion of of the end of history one where there really is no end of history in in modernity because um freedom is always there pushing us on to to kind of new levels as it were um how do you how do you make the, the dialogue between those two or you know is your answer just well fukuyama was just wrong
3: yeah, I think that's my answer. I mean, I and, and I think it's it's interesting because I think he he erects liberal democracy precisely as an authority, right? Like I don't think I don't think it can even liberal democracy can't then function as this ultimate authority in the way that he wants it to. So I don't think you get mm. to the end of history and then you get a some version of authority that's that's more, you know, that we can live with easier than a king. No, I think you don't get any authority at all, and including the people. Like you can't like the idea that the people know what they want and 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 that they're a secure foundation for a regime, I think is is just wrong. So I, I think, I, yeah, I don't think you can reconcile what he's doing with how I understand Hegel.
0: Or at least what he was doing. I mean, I don't know how <laughs> to, to a certain extent. Right. I think he, right. I
3: think he's changed his mind too. That's true. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So on these questions, uh, I'm I'm glad we've kind of pushed into this territory about. Um, um, the kind of the Fukuyama's account of liberal democracy um, and on these questions of the, um, the kind of um, relentlessness of freedom and the lack of any um, stable ground for authority. So we had a question from one of our listeners um, who read your book and uh, daniel matthews Ferreira, and we wanted to put it to you um so he said so how would you characterize this is his question how would you characterize the concrete political project that emerges from your book if you were forced to do so without recourse to hegelian or specialized philosophical terms so in layman's terms
3: yeah do i uh, yeah that's a good question i mean i think it's too uh I don't, how to how to use it? If I can't use the word contradiction, I'm going to have a hard time because <laughs> I because I think it's a politics of rec- being understanding that contradiction is inevitable, and so seeing the way in which there there's no authority to rely on, and then how do you form? And so that means that I think. Well, let me just think about it in terms of like the way in which that means what that implies for politics. Like, I think it implies a radical equality because if everyone has this contradiction at the heart of them, then there's a, I think, a radical equality about that that no one has any substantial status over anyone else, and I think that has to that would be at the basis of what I would think politically. But I don't, I, I guess, I don't know that you can lay out concrete and i don't think i mean this is hegel's i think maybe one of his main most important ideas that you can't you know when he says that philosophy arises this famous thing that al of minerva takes flight only with the falling of dust this is from the preface of philosophy of right i think what he means by that is philosophy can't direct politics in a in a in a way that would be clear and 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 Straightforward. Like part of it is just understanding where we stand, and then where politics goes. I think is, it's always up in the air. I don't think that it can. I don't think there's a. I think we can look to Hegel for a perfect answer for our political situation.
0: I I was wondering whether. um, Well, maybe firstly, what your understanding of politics would be. I mean, is politics contestation maybe itself? Um, or is it, or do you see it as a space in which um, people where there could be negotiation over the future of society or something like that? Um, and, and then maybe as a consequence, or in relation to that, um, what does philosophy not guiding um, politics mean? Uh, and like, and how would you contrast that with a, a situation which or, or the, uh, the argument that philosophy should uh, direct politics?
3: Yeah, that's a lot of questions. That's good. I like those are all really good. So so I guess what I would say is that that the reason why I don't think philosophy should guide politics is because it can't. Because the, I, I guess I'm materialist on this question, like Hegel was, that politics is always out ahead of the way it's going to be theorized. So it's that the political struggle is always going to be beyond what the theoretical conception is so the theor- theor- theory is in, in a sense i think always trying to catch up or philosophy is always trying to catch up to mm. political action so it can't guide it but i would say what's my definition my definition would be and this is much more psychoanalytic than hegelian hegel would never have put it this way that i think politics is a struggle over the distribution of enjoyment that's what i really i mean so i really think that and i think this helps us to understand why fascism is appealing right because it it organizes people's enjoyment in a way that really uh, is has a has speaks to them and mm. so i guess so for me that's the re- that so it's not a question of power i really i really would push against this idea that politics is about the relations of how power is distributed in a society i think it's much more about how enjoyments distributed in a society
2: that's really that's really interesting, and um we'll be'll be, come um we'll come more to fascism in a moment, and specifically what the character of its appeal is. Um, but I wanted to um I suppose I wanted to get a bit more into your understanding of freedom. so um you said you you were you said that contradiction is um, central to the way in which you um, conceptualize society and politics in this Hegelian way. So what is the relationship between freedom and contradiction?
3: Yeah, that's really good. So, so I, I contrast Hegel's position with Anne Rand's. I mean, I know most people don't think of her as a philosopher, but I think she so nicely articulates the position of capital. Like if you could, if you could turn capitalism into an actual philosophy, I think she's the one who does it best. And her insistence that there is no contradiction, I think is really important. And I think, so for me, the idea that every subject and every thing is is necessarily not self-identical? That is, so for Rand, she would say a equals. She takes this this idea from Leibniz that a equals a, that there is some kind of self-identity, and Hegel really takes up this thing, this question, really directly, and he says the point is that a doesn't equal a, that there's always some kind of difference included within the self, and I think that that difference, the way the self is at odds with itself and never is harmonious. I think that it's on that basis that we're free because we're, there's nothing that can actually guide us and tell us what to do in any kind of authoritative way. So I feel like that's the, that, that key thing. I was thinking, it's made me think of this joke. Um, so this guy, this priest is, is walking from the monastery across town to the convent. And he goes through town and he, he runs in, he, he's, as he's walking through the bad part of town, he runs into this uh, prostitute who comes up to him and says, $20 for a quickie. And he's like, the, he's a priest. He doesn't know what she's talking about. So he just kind of walks on. He comes to another prostitute and she goes, $20 for a quickie. And he is, again, he's kind of discombobulated. He walks on. And finally, he gets to the convent on the other side of the town. And he says to the mother superior, what's a quickie? And she goes, it's 20 bucks, just like in downtown. And I, I think that to me is like the perfect Hegelian. Thanks for laughing. That's the perfect Hegelian joke because it 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 eliminates that difference between the sacred or the 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 high, the divine, and the secular. And you know, Hegel has this great line where he says, "The kingdom of heaven is on Main Street." And I think to me that's the real crux. One mm-hmm. like, grasping that is the crux of freedom. I know Alex
1: has a serious question, but this did make me think. Is there a perfect Randian joke? Or is the whole point of her philosophy that you basically can't have a joke because everything that, that, is just stated factually?
3: Yeah, yeah. That would be my claim actually. Like I don't think I, uh, I wrote a little book on comedy and I said something like capitalism isn't funny. And I think that's I think it's it's really hard to have it. There are not very many mm. good capitalism jokes.
0: I love that bit of the book, actually, the the explanation, I mean, in relation to A equals A, Rand, and capitalist ideology um, which really brought something to, to light which I'd never really considered before but I think it's something that anybody who's argued with a defender of capitalism will intuitively understand which is this insistence that things are just as they seem that there is no social totality and that the poor are poor and the rich are rich and that there's no real connection between them you know they're not part of a, a single contradictory whole for example um, so that was right. that was an excellent bit of the book for me I thought um, but, but I did want to ask something back kind of taking going back to freedom and maybe advancing towards authority at the same time Uh, is is freedom the absence of authority or is it the authority of the subject itself because i think probably the kind of maybe the common sense of the day would say that um, freedom is the absence of authority um
3: yeah i i I don't think it's possible not to have an authority, but I think it's, I think what freedom is, is the grasp of the contradiction within authority. So that, so that authority is made into itself a subject and not a substance. Those, so I think that, that turn is really important. So I, I, so I wouldn't say that it, Mm. I'm not sure that it's possible. And I think Hegel would say it's not possible to not have an authority. So there, there's always some authority, but it's then it's the relationship that you have to that authority.
2: Okay, so just I just want to make sure that to kind of, um, I guess, to ram this point home. So if modern politics is that condition, um, where there are no external authorities left, you know, God, nature, emperors, all of those traditional sources of authority are gone. Um, so what is the nature of authority in modern democratic politics then?
3: Right, so Hegel, in the philosophy of right, he, 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 he it's interesting because he keeps the monarch in his understanding of the modern polity. And I think that's interesting. And so for him, I think that the monarch represents contradiction within the otherwise rationalized whole. And so I think that for him, the only real figure of authority in the modern world is this figure of the monarch who he says, all he does is dot the I's and crosses the T's. He doesn't really have any, power he's just this figure of authority and so i think that would be the idea of how the figure of authority would operate in modernity
2: and that takes Mm -hmm. us um yeah i mean well okay so alex you had a question to follow up. well
0: yeah i mean the follow-up i guess then is that if okay so you want freedom um And if you want freedom, you need to discover what happens when there are no external authorities left. Um, There's no no external authorities left to fight. Um, And when the external authorities appear as the mark of our freedom rather than as an obstacle to it. Um, and in relation to that You talk about how we have to resist the resistance um, Not just the, uh, <laughs> the the Hashtag resistance That has emerged in, in recent years Though I, s- I assume now right. has disappeared um, But resistance in this sense meaning uh, I guess denunciation of those who Are up there, those in power um, So if we're meant to overcome this, this Spirit or this mode of Politics which is just stuck in denunciation This kind of, I guess what you you Could call fuck you dad politics um, Where next? Where where does a politics of liberation lead if we're beyond beyond resistance effectively.
3: Well, I just think that it has to lead toward some uh, a positive assertion. so like I think that I think that I guess this is a denunciation of a, a hysteria in politics, right a, a kind of politics that is in love with its own position of as of resistance and then doesn't doesn't think like it's okay to take power and I think Hegel was really. I do this little contrast in the book between Heidegger and Hegel and how Heidegger wanted refuse. He got a call. They both got a call to Berlin to become and be a philosopher at the university of Berlin and Hegel accepted and Heidegger refused. And it's interesting that Heidegger was a fascist and Hegel wasn't. And I think that that's, I think it's not coincidental that one wanted to stay in the rural area and one was okay with going up next to the seat of power. And I think that like not, I think it's really important for the left not to be afraid to be in power. I guess that's all, that's really yeah. all I mean by that, that, that it's, that it, that it, we shouldn't have an allergy to power and think that that's like you're, if you're in power, you're somehow corrupted. Like, I think that it's, I think it's, it's important for the left to not just be stuck in the position of resistance. Yeah. Here, here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted, so I wanted to wind it back to um, this um, uh, the question of, Fascism. And uh, you make the case in the book that what is so um, particularly insidious about fascism is that it appears to preserve contradiction, um, but it transforms it into opposition against an external foe. Um, so it casts uh, harmonious. If a society is, succeeds in expelling this um, this contamination, then it's able to restore its harmony. And the paradigmatic example is uh, obviously Nazi conspiracies about the Jews. Right. Um, so um, it it kind of fascism tantalizes us with this image of a substantial of a substantial state. So could you elaborate on what is the political danger posed by this image of a substantial state, as you put it?
3: Yeah, I mean I think the danger it's I think fascism nicely I mean it's horrible but it nicely shows it that it that it requires somebody to be eliminated like it requires this outside that has to be eliminated in order to make the substance substantial and 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 what's interesting about it I think is that it doesn't like that that there is this kind of affirmation of contradiction but it gets translated into opposition. And I think for Hegel, that's, I think that's a real way to think about his politics in it, 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 But again, it's not like a political program per se, but avoiding thinking about uh, contradiction as opposition. Like when you translate contradiction into opposition, then you've, you've already fallen into this, I think necessarily into a right-wing position. So it has. So I think, it means that the the figures within the contradiction are never they're always figures within the contradiction never the enemy to be destroyed and i think that's a really that's an important thing and i think once you fall into this oppositional thinking then it's it's always going to be an enemy to be destroyed that is the you know the the german philosopher karl schmidt also unfortunately a nazi had this idea that only with if you don't have the friend enemy distinction you lose politics altogether yeah. but i think hegel really Pushes against that yeah. avant la lettre because I think his ideas that actually no politics has to be rec- this struggle of contradiction and the friend enemy distinction is in some way a flight from politics. I think.
2: Yeah. No. I mean, I would, I would totally, um, I would totally agree with that. Um, I wanted to follow up, I suppose, with a, um, with this brilliant section where you it's called or subtitled um Confederate flags everywhere. <laughs> And, um, so I was really struck by it because it's the, um, it's the symbol of the American far right. right, but at the same time, it's a romantic symbol of failed rebellion. And it has all the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of, um, that appeal of the pathetic lost cause, um, and I wanted to, I suppose I wanted to put it to you. Does not the very prevalence of that symbol show that the right too is engaged in a game of resistance like the left and that it's unwilling to take responsibility for fully directing society? It's unable to.
3: Yeah. I think the right is worse on this than the left, actually. Like the right, I mean, even, you know, it's an amazing thing to live in the United States right now. We have a president who t- who's in a position of rebelling against The forces of power, which is it's bizarre, right? Like, but that's, I mean, his his entire, I think, his entire libidinal appeal is based on this position of the rebel. So I think if he ever, I mean, he throughout his whole term has 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 proposed himself as fighting against what he calls the deep state or whatever it is, whatever the, and even if it's his own, you know, his own secretary of state or whoever, he'll he'll fight against them because if, if he can put them in the, or attribute to them the position of power, he needs to be in the position of the rebels, which is why he does that. So I think you're, I, I absolutely agree with that, that the right is even more guilty of this being in love with resistance than the left is, which I think gives actually an opening to the left to say, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to be the ones that are going to take responsibility. And I think responsibility is a key word. I think that, that, that that's a, that's, that's really a, a a position for the left that, that the right almost systematically can't do. Why do you think they do, don't do that? Well, because I think they need, I think it's, you know, if you took, if you took away this populist critique of the ex, you know, the idea, I think Trump's hostility and populists around the world, the, the hostility Bolsonaro Modi, I think to some extent, the, the hostility to the expert is, I think so much of the libidinal appeal that that figure has and so if they ever took responsibility for being in the position that they're that they're in they would have to become aligned with the expert and so i think it's 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 politically impossible for them to do that so so i i I, I I actually meant the left sorry
2: oh you meant the left (laughs) sorry 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 i I, don't know i don't think it's hard
3: for the left i think it's hard for the left only insofar as we're in love with resistance but i think it's i think actually most leftists I know like taking responsibility, you know that I think there is a kind of sense of and I think even when you were talking earlier about the way in which the you know the sense of the social whole and we have to take responsibility for that rather than you know casting off part of it as though those are dead enders or losers or whatever like i think that that yeah. I think there is this affinity between the left and responsibility, which it goes against I think a certain image of the left from you know this like uh a jouir sans entrave, this like enjoyment without limits from the this slogan from May 68. So I think it's against that version of the left, which seems like it doesn't want anything to do with responsibility.
0: But yeah, well, think, I think that's you, right. You... Like, I think the the that left kind of abjures responsibility or at best, I guess what you have today is a sort of a left which wants to take responsibility for society, but I mean, it, it, more in the sense of maintaining a certain degree of harmony um, rather than making its claim and making it making its claim about what it wants and and taking power in order to implement but, the kind of society. But that's
2: that what wants. I was going to say. I mean, are we are we um uh, you know so Todd you mentioned the 68ers. I mean, isn't that precisely our problem that we're ruled by um if not kind of actually ruled by the um by the generation of 68 we're still ruled by their ideas. And that they still um, dominate our kind of political imagination in one form or another, the romance of rebellion, the um, anti um, anti authority, you know, anti authority that's cast as anti authoritarianism. Um, isn't that still the kind of the predominant
3: mode on the left as a whole? Absolutely agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But I mean, it's interesting that it's also the mode on the right, you know. So, yeah, so, absolutely. but, but, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that that, I mean, I think we haven't yet nobody has really taken fully into account the disaster that 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 may 68 as just the synecdoche for that whole movement was for the left you know i don't i think you know Alain badu tries to say that i'd like him a lot on a lot of things but he tries to say that may 68 was this the last political event and i just think that's just completely wrong like i think that that whole because part the other thing that it was was a turning of of economic questions totally into cultural questions, and I think that mm. was also a disaster. So I, I really, I feel like, I, I mean, I, I, most of my friends are still invested in that project, so this, I, this is not a popular opinion uh, among <laughs> uh, where I am, but I, I do think it was really, a, I don't, again, I think it was was a, politically not a great thing for the left.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess if both left and right now are today mainly situating themselves in this position of the rebel right against the against some imagined substantial authority right so both the left and the right, right are kind of fighting against the man um, that would would that suggest that I mean that the image of fascism is is completely illusory because fascism would be a sort of ultra politics and it's a, an, an attempt to um, claim that there is a well, that there is a kind of try to externalize something and make it into an opposition, and that desire to to crush an opposition um, to to make society whole and wholesome again, um, isn't something that is really is not really present in contemporary politics. Well, that would be my right, view. but
3: no, I think that's right. But it's interesting that the doesn't the fascists still require the enemy, right? Like, and it, so it requires the end. But the, and what's interesting is the enemy is no longer. I mean it still sometimes is right like trump did pick on immigrants and uh, like there there is and there is race he's 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 vilely racist too but but i think in general his his main enemy is the expert and so i think it's interesting that it is a kind of internal enemy that's but it's not it doesn't there's no grasp of the contradiction it's still the enemy that must be crushed even though it's an an enemy internal to the society because they don't really belong to the society. I mean, that's the, I think that's, so that's the way I think it's still kind. I think that's still the, I would still call it fascism because even though it doesn't, it's maybe not focusing on this, this uh, you know, this poison within it's still, it's still focusing on an authority that it's trying to get rid of. So it's, I think that's the difference, right? Like it's like, Although I don't know, like Hitler did constantly claim that the Jews were this secret authority functioning in, in German society, you know, so maybe, I don't know how different it is. Maybe, I don't know. So, I,
1: I, I think this discussion um, links really well to a follow on question that we had from a, another one of our listeners, Pete Ramsey, um, who asked, isn't there a danger um, in the book that you've smuggled resistance um, to the illusion of a, a sorry, they've smuggled resistance to the illusion of external authority back in through a politics of anti-fascism.
3: Because the fascist leader is the external authority? I'm not sure I understand. I I
1: think it's the idea that the anti-fascist politics then represents an external authority that there has to be... I'm I'm (laughs) ventriloquizing Pete here, so um, uh, you know, Just to to jump in, I,
0: I mean, I had read it differently. I think it was that the that the claim that someone is a fascist is building someone up, for example, Trump, as this big external authority when he isn't that he 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 lacks authority himself
3: right, 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 right right. no I, I, I see that point. I, I guess I would just say that that I, and I think it's true that that this label fascism can function that way. like it's but I, I I guess I'm using it. I'm trying to be precise about the way I'm using it that it's that actually, and I think it's true that the fascist leader, Is far from being substantial, is almost open about their subjectivity, right? Like they're, because they're open about their weaknesses and their contradictions. Like everyone talks about the way Trump constantly contradicts himself. And they think, and I read someone saying just after his defeat that. Well, the danger now is that we'll we'll get a new version of Trump that won't be so self contradictory. And I thought, well, that's not a danger at all because the very the contradictions are part of the appeal. I think to him. So, so I don't think I would not in any way say that the fascist leader is a substantial figure. I, and I think he's he's al- almost overtly a subject.
2: It isn't that the it isn't that I suppose the issue is the. That for a for a kind of the resistance, um, if I so if I'm following the logic of the question, um, that kind of the the mode of resistance politics on the part of the left. Is part of this um, reaction that you spoke about earlier—the kind of reaction that Hegel um, didn't anticipate—that it's the attempt to—it's a hysterical attempt to recreate an authority, effectively, right, um, right. in order to yeah. rebel against. And right. Right. I think the, that's the
3: wrong response. Yeah. I, I. just think that's the wrong response to the fascist leader. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, and you would you would um, defend yourself from claims that you've done. That you've done the same thing by by bring by bring by trying to um, build up a politics
3: of anti-fascism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I think the difference is that I don't. I it, yeah. Is anti-fascism? Look, I think that that there was this this fetishization of resistance vis-a-vis our contemporary fascist leaders for sure. But I think that to me there's a difference between that and and offering an, an alternative political program which is i think the only way really to defeat that kind of figure i don't think resistance mm. as such ever really gets the mm. job done yeah i i think that's pretty imp- i mean look at i mean look at the us election like the he should have lost dec- decisively and just didn't because there was no alternative program yeah for sure
0: Absolutely. Uh, speaking of an alternative program, <laughs> um, you're fairly critical of, of communism. In the book saying that uh, Marx kind of tantalizes us with uh, offering a vision of communism as a harmonious society, one that's got beyond contradiction, um, but that kind of draws a veil over uh, the future, so that it can act as a sort of substantial authority that this kind of moment beyond where things are resolved um, to justify, which which is used to justify oppression in the here and now. Um, so can you explain what you mean by this and what you find so dangerous in, in this sort of idea of communism?
3: Yeah, sure. So I, I, by the way, this is the idea of the book that's gotten the most critique I've gotten the most response from this, as you can probably imagine. Um, so, but, but I, I don't think I was critical of communism. I think I was critical of Marx and then the actual manifestation of communism, but I can envision a kind of communism that's, that's reconciled with contradiction that, that I have no problem at all with. So I don't so but it's more like what Marx actually says and then how it manifests itself in in Stalin and I, I think that that Marx's idea that when he says in the in the preface to the contribution to the critique of political economy that the bourgeois society is the last antagonistic social form, I think that that's I just I think that's that's a once you say that I think you you open up the possibility of doing whatever it takes to create this harmonious society. I think I say in the book, like if it was really possible to create a harmonious society, then Stalin wouldn't necessarily be wrong. Like Merleau-Ponty even defended Stalin on this Mm. ground. Like we're going to create such Mm. a great future that it's worth it. Like a few million people are dying and like, okay, that's really cold. And we would all say that's horrible. But if you thought like, Mm. okay, we're going to create, there's going to be no more misery and suffering for anybody then i think a lot of us would think like maybe right like we'd at least think it was a possible it was possible but i think once you understand that contradiction is is inevitable and 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 irreducible i think which is i think hegel's position then there's no such thing as a harmonious society and so some kind of suffering is necessarily written into the social the social mm. order and and so and when that's true then i think you you look at those the sacrificing of millions in a quite different way i think so so mm. that's the basis of my so i i, I guess yeah. i say that marx in a certain way paved the way to the stalinist horrors and i think that's that was the thing that people
1: yeah i think especially. i think this is actually one of the really useful points of the book it's kind of um I guess sealing off this kind of lazy thinking that communism is the, you know, the the, the riddle of history solved, and there's no contradictions, and you know it is basically anything can be done to justify this this state of affairs where um, all contradictions are solved. Um, but I think the the um, kind of I guess the tension there is with a, a kind of different view of. of Communism which would be more around the you know the end of the prehistory of mankind um, Yeah, yeah Yeah, and I think I think it is a useful corrective to simplistic thinking about communism as non-contradictory It's more that you have historical contradictions of capitalism, which are then obviously I mean, I think that is a that that is a fundamental You know Marxist point that you would have those contradictions superseded and then you you bring around New contradictions, and that's when the the project of human um, living really begins. When you when you're you know driven forward by those um, contradictions, which which are in, inherent in in a, a load of things, but not in the form of society that you just superseded.
3: Right, right. No, I I totally agree with that, and I think you know. Uh, this is Slavoj Zizek's point. I think that that's his vision of what... Con- he uses the signifier communism a lot wider than I do, and, and that's his vision of it. So he, he doesn't think it's this... I mean, he he's he's a very Hegelian guy, and he's very insistent on the necessity of contradiction, but he still claims that he still insists on communism for the, for the reason I think you just said. Like, he just wants to change our image of it.
2: I wanted to... Um, I suppose uh, I wanted to... I wanted to ask a little, a little more on this question, because the, I wondered, you, so you, you base your claim on the fact that Marx didn't talk about this future society in great detail. And you say that this is partly, you know, what allows the um, this vision of this harmonious future that can retroactively justify so many horrors in the, in the here and now. Um, but I mean, it seems that if, uh, you know, he would be. You could have equally damned him the other way. That if he had kind of um, outlined in full detail what this future society might look like, that would also fall foul of um, being a substantial vision. That could also just as easily justify um, uh, all you know horrors and oppression in the here and now. So, um, right.
3: I, in fact, I think he did the right thing. Like I, I think whenever he talked, I if I say if I was critical of that, then I was I was wrong because I I feel like. It's only when he it's really when he starts to talk about the future that it goes awry, like that little line in the German ideology about the hunter in the morning and yeah. the fisher in the noon like I think that that's like that those are the times when it goes most awry like but i think look, I think Marx's analysis of capitalism is still unsurpassed, so I think in terms of just the critical edge, I feel like marx is like that's something that Hegel didn't have at all like he didn't he didn't really have a you know, he didn't have an understanding of industrial capitalism, so I think that that's a real. And he he did, certainly didn't bring contradiction into thinking about capitalist economy in in any kind of sustained way. So, so yeah, so I I I think that Marx was absolutely right not to speculate a lot on the future.
2: Yeah, so I guess um I guess we've got one. I guess maybe we've got just uh, maybe one or two more questions. A couple more questions. Um, and I suppose the biggest one. So, um, Alex, you have uh, you had something well, you wanted to say. Yeah, I mean,
0: it, it, with the job then, uh, the task facing all political projects, and certainly, I guess, one that we all might identify with, a left-wing one anyway, um, that that project is to reconstitute authority today. Would that be...
3: Yeah, I really like that. I like that a lot. I think that's right. Like, can you reconstitute authority as insubstantial, contradictory. Like, can you can you think authority in that way and then form society on that basis? So yeah, I think, see, I think that's one of the ways in which philosophy or theory does have something to say to politics. Like it says it doesn't say what that's going to look like, but it says like this is what it 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 has to be, just simply because there's no such thing as a substantial authority. And when you try to invoke that, you end up with all these horrors. So I think that, so I, 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 totally agree with that. I think that's exactly, it's exactly right.
0: Okay. Superb. Uh, maybe we can, uh, leave that there cause that's a nice place to finish. Thank you so much, Todd. Oh, thank you. It
3: was great. I had a great time.
0: So, I mean, we did have a, a question, um, from one, another one of our, of our patrons, um, Named uh, Danny, um, n- no no surname provided. <laughs> that, that they're actually a listener to the Why Theory podcast, um, and they've noted that even where they live in Scotland, there's lots of Black Lives Matter signs, um, and then they've been extended to Black Trans Lives Matters, Queer Black Lives Matters, and so on. Um, and so, I mean, I think his question is about identity politics. Um, I'm just trying to parse it here so his question is that uh, does this impulse to augment the message that is to kind of um, articulate various other you know identities together saying such and such matters um, doesn't that undermi- undermine a claim to universality um, and then conversely does the massive influx of corporate money to black lives matter support a claim of universality in that the critical in that the radical potential um had to be smothered um so i guess he's kind of looking at it from from two different ways
3: yeah that's a great question yes and yes yes <laughs> so <laughs> yes yes i think when you add these different particulars you i think Mike. i i claim this in a, in a book of my lead, most recent book universality and identity politics that black lives matter is clearly a universalist project and i think adding these other particular names to it ends up Trying actually retroactively particularizes its universality. So that's the first thing. And then I think the corporate attempts to glom onto it are clear efforts to diffuse the universality of the of the project and to try to make it into something that can fit within capitalist particularity. So I think in an ironic way, I think both of those things are actually functioning in the same way to particularize the universal struggle. And I think that happens all the time. And I think within the capitalist world, this particularization of universalist impulses is the is one of the real ways in which politics gets diffused.
0: I mean it's interesting. I, I my take would be that, I mean, that particularism is always is already perhaps Inscribed, and I think this. So the, this Danny had a uh, uh, listener of ours had a had a follow on question, which um, he asked: Do you, Todd, see any hope of realizing one's common alienation from self identity uh, through discourses around BLM and whiteness? They they think that that no. I um, they think they the thrust of their question is precisely that uh, these discourses around BLM or whatever um, are particularist and are uh, whole to idea of, of a kind of perfect self identity. Um, which uh, which would Yeah, be I I guess
3: beyond. I don't think so because I think the way in which that like the black lives matter I think one thing that really struck me about it was that it was completely non-representationalist. So they were never saying like we need more black cops or we need so it was just saying as long as black lives don't matter then something's wrong with the society. And I think that, that so it was just pointing out the fundamental social contradiction in a society that values life above everything mm. then there's these lives that don't matter and so mm. I think that that to me was the universal charge of black lives matter and i so so i I, I guess i didn't see it as originally particular so I, I saw it as ri- originally having a real universalist bearing to it, and then mm. it i think the, mm. I think the way in which it got manifest, I mean, the way in which like, for instance, the National Basketball Association here took up all the, and like, and all the corporate infiltration of it, I think is a way that it becomes just another particular cause among others. I don't think it was that mm. though. I mean, I get the universality,
0: so, though it seems a little bit like maybe bare life for all. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's the extent. Well, but of the- I don't. Yeah,
3: I I see that point, but I don't th- because I don't think so. I I would have maybe said like black subjects matter, but um, <laughs> I think that you know, just to get out of the problem that you're talking about. But I think in terms of the way, I I don't think it was understood as bare life because I think it was understood as like a full like a full black life matters right like not just survival and so i think it, it wasn't so i think it was important that it wasn't just like a black survival it was a black lives matter i don't know i mean i think you, mm. you're right i mean there is this kind of you could make a bare life critique of it i think mm. but i guess i saw I, this yeah sorry
1: yeah, sorry. Yeah, so Todd, just a final question, I guess, to, to bring it back to to the beginning. Um, you said, um, I think right at the top of the the discussion that for Hegel, the point of philosophy is to reconcile ourselves to contradiction, and obviously the concept of contradiction has to come up a lot. Um, I think the starting point of the book and in in how you explain what contradiction is, um, is extraordinarily thought provoking, and it, you know you show how that drives hegel's philosophy um is it possible to explain to our listeners to give them something to you know to take away right at the end of the the chat without getting too deep into ontology in scare quotes um what contradiction is and why it's so important
3: yeah sure so so hegel's idea is that everything when it when it is structured in just what it is that it has to that in some way it doesn't fit together. And so this and he his idea is that this non-fitting together manifests itself in time. So that's his idea. It's it's almost a theory of time, like why time goes mm. on is because nothing is is equal to itself. Nothing is is perfectly harmonious. And so this lack of I, I think that's the way I like to think of it best is a lack of any harmony within mm. the self, within anything. And I think that that idea that everything is constantly breaking apart. And so there's a way in which he almost anticipates certain ideas of modern physics. I think that in a, in a, in a striking way, almost the way in which nothing is fully itself, that even the molecules are coming in and out of everything that exists. And I think that that's, I think he almost needs to be thought on that level, that contradiction really is the way in which nothing can be perfectly itself. And then I think we, his idea is that we grasp this through language, that because we have language, we can see the way in which nothing can be identical with itself. Because anytime you articulate something, you, you create this distance between what something is. And even for him, it, so Kant has this distinction between things in themselves and things as they appear. And for Hegel, that split. Is really one way of articulating in a really easy way to understand. I think contradiction. So a thing has a certain way it is in itself, and then a certain way that it appears, and that's this fundamental split that everything has.
2: That's really oh, that's, that's really fabulous, Todd. Yeah, <laughs> incredibly um,
1: impressively yeah. <laughs> done without without using too many uh, yeah Hegelian concepts. I remember Did you
2: have that. notes? Because it was. Yeah. Uh, no. Oh, I
3: don't have any notes. <laughs> 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 uh.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Todd. Um, Thank
3: you. I had a great time. I'd love to have you
2: back on at some point as well, maybe to talk about your next book or the one you've just done or something, you know, something
3: else. Anytime, anytime. Thanks.